Welcome back to the Word Encounter episode 229. Well, we will start an exciting journey into the book of Romans. And so, first of all, I'm going to forewarn you with regard to Romans, put your thinking cap on. Paul is a scholar, and uh, a lot of times you have to read and reread and reread what it is he writes so that you understand what it is he's trying to say. And even then, sometimes you're not exactly sure, and you need to meditate and marinate on what he's saying. And so um, <clears throat> you, you, you can't go through the book of Romans uh, without being totally and completely focused to understand what it is Paul is trying to say. So put on your thinking caps as we go through Romans. Um, we concluded uh, in the book of Acts uh, yesterday, which was written by Luke, um, and we concluded with Paul being in Rome. It says he was there for two years and he was taking all visitors and talking about the Lord and whatnot. And so the next book in the New Testament is the book of Romans. And so you would think that maybe this is from his account of Paul being in Rome, but it's not. Okay. The book um, of Romans was written by Paul probably in around AD 57, which is prior to his trip going to Rome. He had never been to Rome when he wrote this letter to the Romans. So he's writing this letter to them to introduce himself and to lay out some uh, precepts and whatnot which, uh, with regard to how the church should be operating. And so <clears throat> uh, this is not, you know, chronologically uh, appearing after the end of the book of Acts. And so I just want to make that clear. Um, there's a lot of meat in here, <laughs> and, uh, and we're going to try to you know, cook this thing, and we're going to try to make sure uh, that it's cooked thoroughly through and that we understand exactly what it is Paul is trying to tell us. So with that, let's get started in the book of Romans. In chapter 1, verse 1, so Paul introduces himself to the Roman belie uh, believers in this letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be a po the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is Paul's introduction of himself to the Romans. <laughs> That's kind of awesome, actually. Paul's desire to visit Rome in verse 8. First, I thank my God through uh, Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is becoming reported in all the world. And so what is going on in Rome uh, is... Uh, has been has been making its travels through the uh, through the Mideast, what they've been doing. Now, Paul did not found the Roman church. And so if we recall in Pentecost, uh, because of the persecution, those in Jerusalem were scattered all over the place. So it's presumed that some of the Christians that lived in Jerusalem, as they were scattered all over throughout the region, made their way to Rome and they founded the church there, the Christian church there. Paul says, I'm always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I very much, uh, for I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. 
That is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So Paul is telling him their desire, his desire to come there so that they can both be strengthened in the faith. Verse 14, he says, I am obligated to both Greeks and barbarians. Now that sounds kind of, that sounds kind of live, but it, it can be translated as I'm obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks. Uh, so if you if you weren't Greek from the Greek perspective, you were a barbarian. <laughs> both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. And so Paul is stating this because in Rome, Rome was an empire. And as you conquered peoples, they would bring conquered peoples into Rome to work as slaves and servants and other things and whatnot. And so Rome had some people kind of from all over the place, kind of like the United States is today. They've got people from, they had people from all over the place. And so Paul is saying that while the, while the church in Rome was mainly Jewish, there were a ton of Gentiles in the church from all over the place. So he's stating that I want to come to you, both, uh, both Jew and non-Jew, both Jew and uh, Gentile, both Greek and non-Greek. You know, I'm, I want to come to you so that we can share this thing called the way, called the Christian way and whatnot. So he's acknowledging that he knows that this is a, a congregation of all nationalities, all ethnicities, and he understands that. The righteous will live by faith in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. See, the qualification is you have salvation if you believe. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed to talk about it. I'm not ashamed to preach it. I'm not ashamed of it. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. For it is in the righteousness of God, for it is in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as, it, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The guilt of the Gentile world. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godliness, godlessness, I should say, and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so when people are living unrighteously, they are suppressing the truth, especially those who uh, proclaim to know the truth, if you're living unrighteously, your witness is that you are suppressing the truth. <clears throat> Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. And so even if you don't know God, if, even if you're unaware of the Mosaic law, what's happening here is says God can be known to everybody because the evidence is amongst us. What is that evidence? Nature itself. You know, nature screams the existence of God. Nature except itself testifies to the existence of God. How nature operates, how the way things, you know, uh, how the earth rotates the sun every 365 days. The time of the day, the seasons of the year. How does, how does nature know how to do these things? It all testifies to God. He said, because God has shown it to them. God has shown us his existence through his creation. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. Being understood through what, he, uh, being understood through what he has made, as a result, people are without excuse. <clears throat> Everything has been made clear since the creation of the world. 
God has been screaming his existence since the creation of the world. How? Being understood through what he has made, through what he has created, the earth himself, the heavens, the earth, the universe, everything that he has created screams his existence. And it says here, and for those who therefore deny his existence, he says, as a result, as my created entity, as my created thing, the world, the earth, the universe, everything, as a result, people are without excuse when they try to deny me. See? A lot of times people are looking for a sign. I want God to speak to me in a vision or this and the other. God is saying, uh, in, in order to prove his existence to me, God is saying, look, my existence is, my, the proof of my existence is plainly in sight. Open your eyes. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to, be wise, claiming to be wise, they became fools. See, we see this in spades today. We have people with all kinds of degrees and whatnot and education claiming to be wise and leaning on science to say science, they're essentially saying science is our God and that God doesn't exist because science exists and this, that, and the other. And so God is saying, look, they're claiming to be wise, but in the process, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. In other words, they had to make gods in order to fill the place of God. We do the same thing today. We do it with money. We do it with science. We do it with other, we, 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 we create these things to place them in the position of God and don't acknowledge God. Verse 24, therefore, God delivered them over to their desires. Well, this, this, is a, this is a tough read, I'm telling you right now. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who was praised forever. Amen. And so they worship things that they created with their hands instead of worshiping God themselves. There, there's, a, there's a need in every person to worship something. And so these people were creating things that they could worship in place of worshiping God. So they created idols. We don't necessarily create idols with regard to how they did it with silver, gold, and this, that, and the other. But we do create idols uh, with things, like I said before, with money, with power, uh, uh, fame, celebrity. We do create idols but not in the same way. From idolatry, from idolatry to depravity, in verse 26, for this reason, God delivered them over to uh, disgraceful, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed with their lust for one another. Men considered shameless acts with men. This says what it says. We cannot sugarcoat it. You know, this is talking about same-sex relationships. It says men committed shameless acts with men and received their own persons and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. God's not down with it. Can't sugarcoat it. Verse 28. But because they did not think it worthy or worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to their corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. So God isn't going to stop them. 
He's going to allow them to follow their desires. It says, they are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Wow, what a list. It says, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things, uh, such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. If that isn't an indication of what's going on today, I don't know what is. It says not only are these things wrong, evil, and wicked, but the, and the people not only do them, you know, they applaud and celebrate people who do. Could it be any clearer? All of these things, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthiness, you know, quarrels, deceit, malice, full of envy, pride, arrogant, boastfulness, inventors of evil, all of these things are celebrated. Man, oh man, oh man. Oh. Romans chapter 2, God's righteous judgment. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Paul is saying here, this is this list, this heinous list here, but oh, be careful with regard to how you judge. <laughs> Since you do the same things. Do you think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the richness of uh, the riches of his kindness, restraint, and compassion and patience? In other words, he's saying you cannot in your life, be doing these things that you're condemning other people of doing when, you know, like I said, when you're doing the same thing, or do you take God for granted? Do you think that he is so um, uh, loving, so kind, so forgiving, so merciful that he will look over what you're doing, even though you're preaching against it? And Paul says, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And so his patience and kindness isn't there so that we can continue to do what we want to do. And then we take his mercy and his compassion for granted and have no intending, uh, have no intentions of changing. Well, saying no, no, no. He's being patient so that you might be led to repentance and stop that which you are doing. Because of your uh, hard, because of your hardening. Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. In other words, you are store, God's anger against you is building and it's going to be poured out uh, on you on the day of judgment. You know, it, you, because he has not poured it out as of yet doesn't mean it's not coming if you continue in your ways. In verse six, he will repay each one according to his works. Now, this isn't talking about salvation. I have to make this very clear. Works, one does not get salvation through works. One gets salvation through beliefs. But works does pay a part with regard to how you get rewarded. See, there are rewards in heaven. There are rewards, you know, after salvation. If you look, if you view it as a, um, um, 
as a, a sporting contest. You know, typically the most valuable seats are in the middle where you can sit right in the middle and see everything. And then the, 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 the least costly seats are the nosebleeds in the top, way high. And so when we get into uh, heaven, we will be appointed, if you will, seats according to what we've done. Will we have the best seats or will we be sitting in the nosebleed seats? And so what we've done, um, that determines what our rewards are. That does not determine whether we get into the stadium in the first place. That is by faith. In other words, we get our ticket through belief, but where we sit is based on what we do. But everybody in the stadium is saved. Verse 7, he will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobedient uh, to the truth while obeying unrighteousness. Everybody is going to get their just desserts. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. Everybody will be judged by the same standard. Uh, in verses 12 through 16, this is very important because this goes over what you know and what you don't know. It would be unjust for God to judge us against a standard that we don't know. See, and so because a lot of times people say, well, what about people who haven't heard the gospel? What's going to happen to them? Well, God's not going to judge people by a standard that they don't know. Let's drop down to verse uh, 14. It says, so when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law, they were not given the Mosaic law, do what the law demands, yet they are obeying the law anyway, even though they weren't given the law. They are a law to themselves. And even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their conscience confirms this. There is a sense of right and wrong in people, regardless of whether they've heard the law or not, regardless of whether they've read the Bible or not. There is this conscious, uh, uh, this, this inner compass, this moral compass that guides people. They know right from wrong innately. They don't need to be taught it. They, they just know it. You know, and so the word is confirming that this is the case and is confirming that that's the standard that they will be judged against because there's there's certain things that are in you that you just know. And so God's not going to judge people against a standard that they don't know. But nobody's going to escape because there's this moral standard that's written in everybody in everybody's conscience. Jewish violation of the law, verse 17. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and uh, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the in immature, having the embodiment, embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? And so Paul is saying, look, you know the law, you know that you're to guide the blind, that you're a light to those in darkness, that you're an instructor of those who are unknown, who are, who are uh, uh, ignorant and don't know, you're a teacher of the immature, you're, you're all of these things. So Paul says, then you who teach one another, don't you teach yourself? If you know these things, why don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal, do you steal? 
You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul is saying, look, if people are doing wrong around you and you know these things, examine what you're doing. You know, are you saying one thing but doing something else? Are you being inconsistent in your witness because you're saying one thing? And you're, are you being a hypocrite? That's essentially what Paul is saying. If you're being a hypocrite, then you are not only impacting you, you are impacting others who are observing you. It says the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. If you call yourself a Christian and you are a hypocrite uh, in your lifestyle and you're a hypocrite in your witness, then the word says that you are blaspheming God. Circumcision of the heart, verse 25. Circumcision uh, benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are lawbreakers in spite of having the letter of the law in circumcision. In other words, Paul is saying you're looking towards your circumcision, your physical circumcision. And because you're physically circumcised, you're saying that I am a part of God's family even though your heart isn't circumcised because you're not living according to what God says. So Paul is saying those who are not physically uh, circumcised will actually judge you because their heart has been circumcised because they are living according to the law and they will judge you. Don't put the status of your circumcision in the top slot. That is not what matters. This is what Paul is telling them. Verse 28. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. Paul said, for a true Jew, a true child of God is not one who is merely physically circumcised. Because true circumcision, you can't look at it, it's not visible. It's an internal work. It says in verse 29, on the contrary, a person is a Jew uh, who is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That the person's praise is not from people, but from God. Let's go on to chapter three. Paul answers an objection. So what advantage does the Jew have or what is the benefit of circumcision? Consider uh, considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted in the very uh, with the very words of God. So the, the people are saying, "Look, well, if circumcision, physical circumcision doesn't amount to anything, then then why do we have an advantage? Do we still have an advantage?" And Paul is saying, "Yes, because God came to you first. He says, first they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then, if someone unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness?" That's a fair question. <laughs> you know? absolutely not. Uh, Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. And so, in other words, what they're saying is, uh, what then? If someone unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? If they didn't do what God tell them to do, will then God not keep his part to the people because they didn't keep their part? And Paul is saying, no, God is still going to be faithful to his word, even though they weren't faithful to their purpose. 
Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, this is interesting, but if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I am using a human argument, Paul says. Is God unrighteous to inflict his wrath? In other words, they're saying, well, if our unrighteousness actually highlights God's righteousness, then is that a good thing? Isn't that a good thing? <laughs> you know, if us being bad makes God look good, isn't that a good thing, essentially? And Paul says, absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God, how will God judge the world? And so what they're saying is, is, would God be unrighteous? Wouldn't God be unrighteous to judge us in our badness because our badness is highlighting his goodness? So at the end of the day, it's a good thing that we were bad. And so why would God judge us? And Paul said, no, 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 no. That, that's ridiculous thinking. No, no, no. How could God be just if he didn't punish the badness, if he didn't punish the unfaithfulness? But if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also being judged as a sinner? So they're saying the same thing. It says, but if by my unfaithfulness and unrighteousness, you know, God's truth is glorified, then I should be lauded, not punished. <laughs> Why is he judging me as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, let us do what is evil so that good may come. So let us continue to do and live just ridiculously, because after all, good is going to result from it. And Paul says their condemnation is deserved. The whole world guilty before God. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. Are we uh, Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So we're, the difference is negligible because we're all sinners. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is, uh, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God, who seeks God alone. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin, the wretched, uh, ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace is not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is talking about all mankind. Even the most noble of us still fits into this category. It says no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through law. Because the law is only good for educating one on what sin is, to point out to one that you're sinful. That's the only purpose of the law. That's all it's good for. It can't redeem somebody. It's just a mirror. It just shows you what you are. The righteousness of God through faith. Verse 22, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. The only way, the law can't get you righteous and right before God. The only thing that can get you right before God is faith in Jesus. That's it. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Not one person alive or who has ever been alive is excluded from this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Save Jesus. That's it. Verse 24, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is Christ, that is in Christ Jesus. That's the only way. Verse 28, for we concluded that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so the bottom line is that a person is justified, is redeemed 
through faith, apart from the law. The law has nothing to do with the, the redemption status of a person. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Because if that was not the case, if it was only via the law, then it would only be redemption would only be available to the Jews. He is not the God. Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. There is, um, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then nullify the law through faith? Faith? Absolutely not. On the con- on the contrary, we uphold the law. And so it sounds like the law is being downplayed, but then Paul says, no, on the contrary, we're upholding the law. How is the law upheld if it has no purpose except to show people their sin status? Well, because through our faith, the faith that we have in Jesus, the Holy Spirit then comes in us. And we start to observe the law through no efforts of our own trying to be obedient to the law, but because the change of heart, the internal change of our heart modifies our behavior. We're not trying to keep the law. The law is being kept because our heart has been changed. Wow. Anyway, we are done for today. We'll pick things up tomorrow in Romans chapter uh, 4. And remember the invitation and the proposition that is always being sent out. The word says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Don't hesitate or delay. Make that confession today and sincerely mean it. With that, we'll see you tomorrow. Stay safe. Be blessed. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And should he grace us with another day, we'll see you in the next episode of The Word Encounter. Bye-bye.